So I guess dreams go from the trivial. Yeah, I was at the Emirates yesterday. I dreamed that we could have actually scored in the last three minutes. We could have forced the replay. Instead, we lost if you're not interested in football. So actually, we dream about love. We could dream about society. I, I was reading this week that there's a study of dreams called honorology. Most people have three to five dreams a night. If you slept, let's just do a quick poll here. Now, some of you are going to think on Saturday night. I don't want to confess in church how late I went to bed. If you had an eight-hour sleep last night, they reckon that you would have dreamed for up to two hours. Oh, golly. How much of it can you possibly remember? And, and, and actually, does it really mean anything? You know, the danger is, let's be honest, if often we wake up from dreams, we think, oh, it's probably just what I ate the night before, what's been playing on my mind. We're going to read about a guy that we would think it was a dream, but I would say it was a vision, and I would say there's a slight difference. A dream could be something we could almost imagine or we'd like to see. A vision, I'd say, is something that comes from God. And, and this guy, Isaiah, he doesn't just dream this. It's almost like God imparts something to him. This guy, he lived almost 3,000 years ago. He was used by God. In fact, this dream vision was so powerful to him that he, he comments on it throughout the rest of his life. It's one of those life-changing moments. I think that for Julia and Andy, we're baptizing them today because they've had a life-changing moment. They would, and they're going to tell their stories in a moment. They would say, something happened to me that is going to change me for the rest of my life. I think this was true for Isaiah. We know in chapter 37, he goes back to the dream. Chapter 57, he's referring to it again. Anyway, I'm not going to string it out anymore. I'm going to read you a few verses, say a few words from it, and then we'll hear from the others. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. Father, I want to thank you that as we've sung to you this morning, we just felt you've spoken to us about your grace. I want to thank you that you're a God who speaks. I want to thank you that this book that we read is not just some out-of-date manuscript. It's the living word of God for us today. I pray that each one of us now will hear you speak. Whether we've just come to watch, whether we come every week, whether it's our first time, 
I pray that our hearts will be open and we'll hear God speak to us. Amen. So I'm just going to look through this passage. I want to start with the fact that I believe here we get a very clear picture of a holy God. You see, it's this human king involved in this story. If you don't know much about him, he was a good king of Israel. Israel had good kings, they had bad kings. This king was a wise administrator and he was a great fighter. He was a successful military man. In fact, some of the books reckon he was the best king of Israel since Solomon. And we've always heard these things, haven't we? The wisdom of Solomon. He was a good man. And what had happened is when you have a good man lead a country, they'd become very wealthy. And so actually what happened is the people were trusting in their wealth. And so they used to think I could come to, to God who'd give him a nice sacrifice and God would just overlook the wrong things I've done. I think that would be true of us, can't it? If we're really honest, we could turn up at church and think, oh, I, I put a good check in there. I text 30 quid. You know what I'm saying? God will overlook me. But that is not the story that we find here. It's not about how many sort of material things that we could cram in to make ourselves feel successful or popular. You see, in the midst of this, we knew that the, the country had a enemy close by. The Assyrians were building up a strong army. And so although this successful king had died, the people were thinking, oh, help, because we've been doing well, but we know there's trouble around the corner. We know that we're about to be invaded. We know that we're up for trouble and our leader's gone. Sometimes we can feel like that, can't we? Even as a nation. You know, you think, is it a double-dip recession? I think it must be a triple-dip recession. You know, I thought my job was safe and now suddenly they say spending's going down again and yet things are costing more. Every month I'm not getting a pay rise. We can suddenly think, oh, help, there's trouble around the corner. I don't know what tough time you're going through in your life. I do know this, that God is on the throne. This is clearly what it says. And, and what kind of God are we talking about? And, and I can say the word God, and even now we can all have different pictures in our minds. I mean, I'll be honest, I've read this passage time and time again, but I've never really picked up on the detail. It says here, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, in, in the footnote of mine, it said, you know, because I could think, oh, what's the train of his robe? Oh, it's this long thing flowing. Well, they, they didn't think they had trains. They didn't think this was a, a traditional thing. What they actually reckoned it was referring to was the hem of his robe filled the temple. So what's the hem? I mean, it's like you probably can't even see it there. You know, I've got a little stitching around the bottom of my jeans. That's like the hem. You know what I'm saying? So what it's suddenly saying is this temple, which was this magnificent building, which was high, which is where God dwelt in the middle of this place. He said, I have this picture of God filling it. And people, you think, wow, big God. And then actually said, no, no, it's not God that fills it. It's just the little hem of his robe that filled it. That's how big God is. And I think sometimes what we do is we, we make God small and we can turn up here and think, oh, I wonder if God could possibly help me. I don't think God could possibly cope with what's going on in my life. And actually, when he gets this vision of God, it's not like, oh, well, this is God that, you know, like fills this room. It's almost like, no, actually, one button off his shirt would more than fill the room. That's the kind of God that he's trying to describe. The danger is that our God is too small, isn't he? And, and then the detail that comes through in this. We, we don't know a lot about these heavenly creatures. We know what their name is. They're creatures of fire. Bright, bright burning ones. 
And, and, and fire is often a picture of the very presence of God. You see, if you, if you read the Bible, you would know that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they put an angel with a fiery sword. It was like the presence of God. Can you go in any further? We know that when Moses approached a, a bush in the desert and this voice spoke, the bush was on fire. It signified something of the very presence of God. And so what he was saying is, wow, this is a holy God who's present here. We know that when the Israelites left Egypt and they wandered around the, the desert, they were led by this pillar of presence of God. We know that when Gideon and his 300 men attacked this, they, there's a big army and he attacks them. There's only 300 of them. They have a torch and they smash the jar and it's almost like the presence of God is with them and 300 set a whole nation to flee. He's saying, actually, there's something about God's presence. I believe that when the church gathers together, there's something about God's presence. You know, uh, please, we are not here this morning. Well, we are here to see Julia and Andy get wet. But it's not just about being big drips for Jesus. We're here because we believe there's something of the presence of God. We don't believe that this is just a, a morality. We don't believe this is just a do-gooder. We believe that we encounter the living God. His very presence is what we're about. And what do we know about this God? We know that he is holy. I used to be a primary school teacher. Some of you know that before. And, you know, you always teach kids and, and you're trying to, if you really want them to grasp something, you've got to use as many senses as possible. Yeah, you know, if, if you just say something, they hear it. I think God so wanted them to grasp this picture of a holy God that he sent it in as many sensual ways as possible. You see, if you think about it, Isaiah sees this vision. He suddenly, whoa, his eyes have seen something of the holiness of God. He then hears them singing. What are they singing? Holy, holy, holy. It's almost like saying something, wow, this is, this is God. I've not only just seen it, I've heard it. It then talks about the temple being filled with this incense, this smoke. He smelt the presence of God. They used to burn incense. You know what I'm saying? I, we, we can miss so much of this. I'll be honest, I had some friends stay over on Friday night. And, you know, I'm trying to make them feel comfortable. So I've got a, a fire in the lounge. And I don't quite know why it did this, but I lit the fire and instead of all the smoke going up the chimney, it just billowed out into the land. It was just, I mean, instead of warming them up, yeah, the smoke alarms are going on. I've got upstairs, downstairs. I'm trying to fan them. I've never seen them go for it. I don't know how to disconnect them. You know, I'm suddenly running around like this. I'm opening the windows. I'm trying to waft all this smoke out here. I still go down in the lounge now, and it stinks of smoke. Well, I think that was something almost of the presence of God for Isaiah. It wasn't just this little whiff. It wasn't, oh, golly, someone having a curry somewhere. Or can I smell a bacon butty? No, there was almost like this great waft of the presence of God. We can smell something of the holiness of God. It even says here, the doorposts shook. He felt something of the presence of God. You know, it's almost like you could feel it. He was overwhelmed. Throughout the rest of the book, he often calls God the Holy One. We know, don't we, that's often a name for God. We know if you read the end of the book in Revelation, the angels there are singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. 
You see, again, I think we've got to get a bigger picture of what kind of God we come before. Sometimes we think, oh, God will just sweep what I've done under the carpet. God will just forget. God's a God of love. Actually, he's saying God is holy God. He's so distinctly other, so separate. God has never done anything wrong, never thought anything wrong. He tells the truth. He cannot lie. He cannot stand sin. What is sin? What we think, say, and do that is wrong. And then in this vision, Isaiah is humbled. He cries out, doesn't he? Woe is me. It's almost, if you, if you wanted to flick through the rest of the, the, the book, the first five chapters, he's been concerned about the nation. Now he's seen Almighty God and he feels undone. I love that song we were singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want my kids to grow up feeling secure and loved. I often tell them every day, you know, I love you. Do you know you're my favorite 13-year-old in the world? Do you know you're my most beautiful girl in the world? Uh, yeah, obviously I've got a wife. Beautiful woman, not girl, you know what I'm saying? There's this whole challenge. You, you want, I think sometimes we come before God and we've been told so often that we're so good that we forget before God that we're so wrong. And we come before God and we say, I'm basically a good person. Okay, I've slipped up occasionally. I asked my wife to take a few speeding points for me, but let's not go public on that one. You know, this is a little, it was just a little misdemeanor. I didn't mean to do it. But actually, generally, we'd say before God, oh, I think I'm good. I think I'm okay. Where he gets a vision of God, he suddenly is humbled and says, man, I am a mess. It says in Ephesians, it's a book in the New Testament, Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we by nature children of wrath. What he's really saying is actually out of our heart flow some mucky things. In fact, they reckon this is why Isaiah's lips were touched, because it wasn't the lips that were wrong, but it's the things that came out. You see, if we're really honest... And I'm sure it's not you. I'm sure it's everyone else in Ealing. We can all live such good screensaver lives, can't we? The screensaver of my face is I'm smiling and I'm happy. But underneath, you goodness knows, even now, you're looking at me smiling, you might just be thinking, Pete, you stink, sit down, I'm fed up with you. We can do it, can't we? What do we really think on the inside? C.S. Lewis, a great author in this country, said, For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambition, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. I guess what happened here with Isaiah, he has this vision of God, and he suddenly realizes, man, I'm a, I'm a pretty horrible person inside. The beautiful thing I think about this story is it doesn't end there. I've not got you here. We've not got you here at church on a Sunday morning just to beat you up and condemn you. We've got you here to tell you that there is a divine touch by God. Now, I'm very aware that when I start talking about the hand of God, that that brings a bad image to many of you. 
The fact is, we all, you know, know Maradona was known as the hand of God, fouled in. Maybe some of you that are a little bit more um, churchified might think, oh, if I think about the hand of God, I think about the Sistine Chapel, you know, sort of God and, and Adam reaching out there. What do I mean by a divine touch? I mean this. The divine touch was heaven initiated. You see, this dealing with Isaiah's mess started with God. It was out of grace. That's what we've been singing about. Isaiah doesn't actually plead, I don't think, and ask. Isaiah doesn't come before God and say, Oh, God, if you forgive me, I promise that I'll do better. Isaiah doesn't say, If you forgive me, I will be a good boy for the rest of my life. What happens is God reaches out to Isaiah. I believe the Bible says God reached out to Andy and Julia before the world was formed. I believe the Bible clearly says that he reaches out to us. Our danger sometimes is as we can even think, oh, well, I've come to church and I'm reaching out to God. Before you ever thought about God, God is reaching out to you. You see, although we have this holy God, which means separate, which means other, which means higher, he still wants to reach out. And you might be here today and think, oh, golly, I'm a mess, Pete. Yeah, I'm a finance. I'm in trouble. Oh, I've got relationship after relationship gone wrong. Oh, you might just think, the porn I've looked at this week, I feel ashamed to be in church. God in heaven wants to reach out to you. That's the God we come before. He reaches out with this hot coal. Now, you know, what does this mean? Well, it says it's a hot coal from the altar. It could have been. There was two altars there. One, which was like the Holy of Holies, which they burnt the incense. Upon that was this sense of holiness before God. I don't know this. I think it came from the other altar. The other altar was where they brought their sacrifices before God. And it says all in the Old Testament about these to often do these sacrifices. And so on the other altar would probably have been killed a lamb. That would have been, you know, they used to have this year-old spotless lamb that would die on the altar and be burnt, and it was like on behalf of them. So I believe that this coal that would have come from there and touched him could possibly have smelled of burnt lamb. Because ultimately, we're not a church that is about hot coals. You know what I'm saying? We're not trying to spread them out here and say, hey, you get across the hot coals, you've made it to glory. No, we're actually about the lamb. And I think the lamb is Jesus Christ. It tells us that in the Bible. It says they had this picture, but actually he was the perfect lamb. He was the one that ultimately was to die on a cross. That's why we sing about him. And so really, I think this, this hot coal, it's almost it's a picture of pointing to, we don't have to worship a hot coal and, and hope we're going to get this dream that God will touch us. We know the lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him, that died on a cross, that rose again, that actually says, I can touch your life. That's what we come before. Jesus said himself in Matthew 20, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the word that was in the, in the Bible was sin atoned for. What does that mean? Well, if you're a dad, you understand completely what it means. When I take my family out, I've got three kids, and, and we go out for dinner. Let's be honest, we often do it on the old Tesco vouchers. Fantastic. The danger with Tesco vouchers they don't cover the drinks, you know what I'm saying? So the kids are ordering the drinks in, and who pays the bill at the end of the evening? Good old dads. Somebody has to pay. Someone has to pay for what we've done wrong. 
That's the way it goes. He's a holy God. He's not going to lift up the, the corner of, of the universe and just sweep us in under it. Because then he wouldn't be holy. What he says is it needs paying for. Someone will pay. He doesn't just say, actually, I'll punish you. He says, I want to restore you. That's what the payment is all about. It says, some of you know this, the, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. I mean, that's the wonderful thing we've got. Hey, if you don't know God, and you think, hey, I admit, my life is, I'm not perfect. I admit, I've thought things wrong, said things. I admit, this week I've done it. Then we want to tell you about a God who would love to reach out to you. And the great thing is, it was instantaneous. I mean, what happens here, there's an immediate effect, isn't there? It's the here and now. He asks for forgiveness, he's forgiven. He doesn't have to keep on thinking about it. He doesn't have to keep dredging it up. It's almost like Isaiah is here. He's touched by God. That's it. It's dealt with. It doesn't say, oh, you know, he had to beat himself up for the next week. It doesn't say, you know, he had to stuff straw down his boxes to make himself uncomfortable, just to be really irritable and say, oh, I've struggled. Now God's forgiven me. God's forgiven. It was instant. The author says in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, if you confess them to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. You can know this kind of purity right now. You think, oh, but Pete, you don't know how long the list is. No, but the God in heaven does. That's the kind of God that we're comfortable with. That's the kind of vision that we have. And and then it doesn't stay there. I'm just going to do one last verse. And I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. i tell you what I love about this. When the vision started, he heard the choir. By the time it ended, he heard God. Because actually when you had a touch from God, you're called into relationship with God. Which means you can hear God speak. It's not, do I just stand from the back afar? And you might even have felt that this morning. I feel like I'm watching other people do something with God. Actually, by the end of the story, he knows God. The holy God speaks to him. This, to me, is a picture of intimacy. Hang on, he's perfect and he's holy. But he also wants to be close. He also wants to be a father. He also wants us to hear his voice. I mean, isn't that so much more beautiful? We can hear God. You could know God. You could have a, a, a relationship with him. You're just driving around in a car. You're on the tube. You're sat on the toilet. Most places you can hear God. There's this sense of God being close. I guess what I find challenging is that spiritual experiences are not meant to be an end in themselves. So even here, they've heard God. But then actually, if you've heard God, it's going to make a difference on Isaiah's life. You see, Andy and Julia are getting baptized because they've heard something of God. But therefore, it wasn't just some, oh, that was a nice experience. Oh, I felt good for that. Then they think, okay, why do I get baptized? Baptism to me is a a very visible demonstration that he's now in charge of your life. He's now the Lord. 
He's the boss. Isaiah, we know, demonstrates that, that God is in charge of his life by being happy to serve God in whatever way he says. His arm's not twisted, you know what I'm saying? It's voluntary. It's almost like, again, I used to be this primary school teacher, and you know, sometimes in those days you'd ask a question, and this kid knew the answer, and they're bouncing up and down on the chair, and you think, I'm not going to ask you because you always get the answer right. I, I want to ask somebody else, you know what I'm saying? And you ask another question, and this kid's bouncing up and down, and you're never sure if they need the toilet, if they can actually answer the question. It's just that energy, that enthusiasm. I think Isaiah was a bit like that. It's almost God is saying, hey, who, who's going to go? He's going, me, 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 I'll go. It's almost like that, that excitement. We're not forcing these people to get baptized. We don't force people to give their money. There's something about actually saying, I want to live my life devoted to him. We are called to be a pure, holy people. That's something that's exciting. You know, I think us being pure, which is one of our values that we've been looking at, purity, compassion, adventure, I think actually this is something really thrilling. Owen McManus, a guy who leads a church in California, said this, I'm convinced the great tragedy is not the sins we commit, but the life that we fail to live. Being a Christian is not about, oh, am I worried about the sins here? Being a Christian is saying, whoa, what's the adventure? Where's the excitement? Where's it going to go? What's God going to say to me? What's he going to ask me to do? That's the kind of God that we're serving, isn't it? There's something of faith and excitement and thrilling. And so I think it leads to holy living. The danger is if I say holy living, you tend to think of sort of white roses, don't you? I don't know. If I say something like pure, you tend to think of, I don't know, is it cleansing stuff ladies use before they go to bed at night? Now, it's not that kind of stuff. Purity is something much more exciting. I think pure means that we're morally pure. I think it means that we're honest in the way we handle our money and tell the truth. People can trust our word. It means we're friendly. We forgive. We don't get better. That's holy living. It means that we don't judge people. We say the best about them. It means that we live life full of the Spirit. Confessing what we've done wrong, seeking God. I think that what happened here is Isaiah has this wonderful vision, not just of some distant ancient God. In fact, it tells us in John and in Acts that he saw Jesus, and in Acts says that he was led by the Spirit. In fact, some have even said he said he saw holy, 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 because he saw the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, whether we can quite push it that far, but what I clearly think is he was caught up in something of God that if you read the rest of the book, you just think, wow, what an exciting adventure, a life of devotion to him. I think that is what we're here to celebrate today. What we would say is that Andy and Julia, they've seen something of God. They've recognized something about themselves. And they're saying, hey, I want to spend my life following him and doing what he wants. We're going to be doing the baptisms. Uh, this is just a cue. I know Julia's going first, right on cue. So you're going to be out in one minute, Julia. Just to explain, we see this very much like a grave. The town hall wouldn't let me dig a hole in the floor, so I've just had to put it on top. But genuinely is that they're dying to themselves, they're living for him. They're recognizing who God is, and they say, hey, it's no longer be about me. I want it to be about him. Just to explain how this is going to work, I know a couple of people are going to get the kids Julie's going to tell us why her story once she went to get baptized. Andy's going to tell his. 
We're then going to be praying for both of them. And then we're going to move these two rows of chairs here and we'll have a big scrum around here and we will baptize them and there'll be a song at the end and we'll be finished in 20 minutes. So I'm sure there'll just be a little bit of movement going on. That's fine. Whilst this is all happening, if I could encourage Julia to come forward. Let's give her a round of applause. Hello, can you hear me now? All right, I'll start again. Morning, everybody. I'm Julia. I'm excited to be getting baptized here this morning. This is my story. I was brought up by Christian parents, and we used to go to the Open Door Community Church in Uxbridge when I was young. So I've always had my faith and believed in Jesus, but as soon as I was old enough to make a decision about church, it's not something that I really decided to pursue. I left school at 18, and I went off to university to study psychology. It was about this time that I started hanging around with people who used drugs and unfortunately went down that path myself for a while. I ended up dropping out of uni with no real focus or motivation. However, when I was 21, I managed to get a job as a probation officer and later worked with drug addicts and qualified with a degree in criminal justice. I've been doing this work that I'm really passionate about for 10 years now, but I'd say that it's only in the last few years that I've really developed my faith. My mum has always been an inspiration to me, especially where her faith is concerned. Despite having MS from a young age, she's always remained positive and thankful to God. My dad was always a strong and healthy one, but when I was 27, he was suddenly diagnosed with cancer. He turned back to Jesus at this point and started attending the Crown Church. He was always encouraging me to come along, and the last event we went to together was actually Tough Talk at the Crown which was a group of ex-criminals telling their story about how they had turned their life around through Jesus. I was actually with my dad when he passed away, praying and singing hymns. And there was such a sense of peace and warmth in the room that I'd never felt before that I was certain that God was present and my dad had been saved. About a year on, I decided to take some of the advice my dad had given me for once and go to church and also watch a film that he'd kept recommending called The Bucket List. It stars Denzel Washington and Jack Nicholson and is about two unwell men making the most of life and following their passion. So I watched the film and a little while after, I dropped into a local church in Ealing for the first time. I was really surprised and moved to hear that the sermon that day opened with the question, who has seen the film The Bucket List? I felt that this was a sign that I was doing the right thing by going to church. So when I saw Pete's update on Facebook about planting a church in Ealing a good while later, I knew that it was something I wanted to be part of, and I'm really glad that I am. I guess in my life, I like to follow the moral of the story of the film I mentioned. I like trying new things and experiences, and I probably always will. The difference now, though, is that I'm not searching for something anymore. I believe that I found what I was once looking for and I'm more than happy to accept Jesus as Lord of my life. I've said sorry and asked for forgiveness for the things I've done wrong in the past through prayer and I know that Jesus' love is everlasting and it's never too late to make a fresh start. 
Maybe it doesn't necessarily mean that things will always be perfect, but it does mean that my faith has given me the strength and courage to face anything that comes my way. Thank you. Really brilliant. Well done. It's great having Carol with us as well and family and friends that are all cheering on. Andy, do you want to come out and tell us your story? We'd love to hear that. Everyone's different. That's the great thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure there'll be many others that come out here and tell us their story. Hopefully there'll be other people from here that you think, I'd like to tell my story of what God has done for me and why I'd like to get baptized. Cheers. All right. <laughs> um, okay, um, here's my testimony. Uh, life can be a little crazy sometimes, um, forgetting your, uh, well, where your priorities are. Um, this could be work, it could be family, it could be your health, and it could be God. I first started attending church just over two years ago. At first it was my girlfriend at that time who asked me to attend. She thought it would be good for me to attend, a good chance to meet some of her church friends. Um, I think the first person I met was Graham. It was Graham and Maggie. Uh, if anyone could put me at ease, it would be Mr. Mazel. Um, our first conversation involved cars, and uh, that was a winner at that point. Um, I was going through a pretty rough patch um, when I went to the church. Uh, finding God or understanding what the Holy Spirit was. Um, sorry. Uh, going through a pretty rough time in my life. Um, finding God or understanding God uh, would have been pretty tough and it never crossed my mind. After hearing a preach that was pretty much aimed at me, it was either the first time or the second time I attended that church, uh, just put me into a bucket of tears. Um, I, knew that it, I knew that my first step in moving on with the rest of my life was to forgive a betrayal. Uh, that happened at that time. Um, and that was the very next thing I actually did. Uh, during the next 12 months, my time in worship was spent looking at the band, trying to learn the words, crying, and getting to know some fantastic people. It was probably a full year later that I was saved. Um, after watching endlessly other people going to the front and being prayed for, and me standing around wanting to head down there, but felt too self-conscious and nervous. Until one day, a guy called Kevin Gill was preaching and using, using an example about a guy and a girl both liking each other. But as much as the girl liked the guy, and vice versa, they couldn't express the interest in one another and were struggling to spend time together. And he was just too nervous to actually ask her out. That's exactly what was happening right now with me. Uh, God was wanting to spend time with me, but I was just too nervous uh, to enter into his kingdom. Um, and that was it, really. But at that time, what I did uh, during a certain preach, I, um, I just asked him quietly, not out loud or anything like that, just quietly for him to, to be in my life. Um, and I just prayed silently 
And that's what happened. Um, since that time, I've not noticed major changes in me. It's not like I was a bad person before. Uh, the main points of change are that I can forgive a lot more. I have more patience, although I do get a little hot-headed at times. Um, and I have a fantastic extended family around me. Uh, it's funny, really, as I always had a feeling that there was something there, something keeping me safe from a young age. Even at points in my life where my health was not the best, things could have been a whole lot worse at different points. Your life does not become all fluffy when you have God around you. I still have daily torments, weaknesses, which could lead to me falling off the right path. It is vital at that point never to lose sight of why I am here and why Jesus gave his life for me. Thank you. I think it's so brave of these people to come and tell a story. It's really exciting. We're just trying to warm it up slightly before we get them in there so that they can still speak tomorrow. What's going to happen, I'll just explain, and I know some of you find this slightly strange, we believe God answers prayer. And so what we think is it's a great opportunity to pray for people. Uh, God can hear every prayer that is prayed. Some of them will be prayed out loud, some of them you'll be praying from where you are. We're going to encourage uh, Julia, she'll be standing, and Andy to be standing, and we just encourage people. Gather around them, put your hand on them, reach your hand out, and pray for them. I'll just explain why we're doing this. We're going to be moving these two rows here. There won't be a rush. We want to make sure, particularly friends and family, get near the front, and then we'll get everybody around and we'll baptise. So, but I'll explain that. So don't suddenly feel I've got to keep nudging this way, but I'm praying that way. You know what I'm saying? I think it'd be great to pray for Julia and for Andy. We do want to be this extended family that is around them. Pray God's blessing upon them. Pray God's give them strength, encouragement, hope. They hear from him. Uh, so I think it'd be lovely to pray for both of them right now, and we'll just be doing this, and then I'll call people onto the next activities. Maybe we could stand and get involved in praying.